The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Several years ago, I read a quite interesting book by one of my favorite authors, James Hillman, entitled A Terrible Love of War. And he wrote about how the three religions, the major religions on the planet that are uh, that come from Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Muslim, Islam. You might not be aware that all three of those religions were founded through Abraham as their father, but they are. That those three religions have created more violence on the planet than any other religions, any other force. And it perhaps won't surprise you to know that Christianity leads the pack. They've done the best at creating war and killing. So our desperate need to learn to communicate with one another, I know is apparent to all of you. Else you wouldn't be here, else you wouldn't be practicing. And for that, I am very grateful. We need all of us. But exactly how do we take the Buddha's teachings about mindfulness and use them in our daily lives? That's what I'm interested in, especially as a mediator in the federal court. I deal with uh, highly emotionally skilled lawyers all the time hardly ever run into any narcissist or borderline personality <laughs> disorders. A few sociopaths show up every now and then, but... So I get a lot of practice myself. And recently, I, I've given this particular talk, not even close to the way I'll give it this morning, but I've given this particular talk several times over the last several years to people who I'm helping to train as mediators. And the way I title this talk for them is how do we manage our internal dialogue as a mediator? I'm sitting in a room and I have parties on various sides and they're arguing with one another. They're deep in conflict. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm righter than you could ever possibly be. What's going on inside me? And mostly in mediation training, it won't surprise you that nobody talks about that. It's what's going on out there and how can I manage or deal with what's going on out there. So I call this managing our internal dialogue as mediators. The Buddha, as I mentioned in the very beginning of my, whoops. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the very beginning of my meditation instructions, talked about the three ways that we get hooked in life. The three big swinging hooks that grab us over and over again. One is anicca, how things change. 
and virtually every lawsuit that I deal with as a mediator comes from a party having a relationship and something changing in that relationship and the other side not being so happy about that change because the other side starts to suffer and be dissatisfied and have a hard time as a result of the change. And that's the second fundamental teaching of the Buddha about what hooks us. Life is filled with change and we don't like the change so it's dissatisfactory to us. And how come we don't like the change? We make it up that it's about us. You know, some fanciful thinkers, even when there's a hurricane or an earthquake, I caused it. That's pretty far out, and we would consider that psychologically unbalanced, but on a much lower scale, we all do that very thing all the time. Things that arise in our lives, we have a deep internal dialogue about how bad we were, how unskillful we were, or things that people do outside us, regardless of whether it had anything to do with us at all, we make it be about us. And so we get upset with them. Just yesterday, I had an hour and a half talk with my 34-year-old daughter who is still projecting her things onto me. Those of you who are parents know that it seems never to end. <laughs> but she's in a very difficult marriage and her job is struggling for her and she thinks that I'm thinking what I'm not thinking. And that's what happens to us when we get hooked by the self that the Buddha talked about, the absence of self. It's the absence of a self that makes it up as being about me. So, the Buddha taught, and since I'm talking about Jessica, my daughter, one of the first times that I got to practice this with her was during that volatile period when she was a teenager. Fortunately, it didn't last very long with Jessica. Five or six months, the hormones were blazing and she was challenging to be around. For the most part, she is an extraordinarily wonderful child and an extraordinarily wonderful young woman. I'm very proud of her. But one particular night, she had a few nights before decided that she was going to sit at the end of the table where her mother used to sit. And that was fine with her mom. She sat down there, and I don't remember what I said. I'm sure it was something absolutely gross and horrible. <laughs> but she stood up, put her hands on her hips, and wagged her finger at me and said, you are the most blankety-blankety-blank father, male, chauvinist pig that I have ever known in my life. And she stormed away from the table, went into her bedroom, which was right off the dining room around through the hall, and slammed the door. And fortunately, I sat. <laughs> Give myself a pat on the back one, even to this day, I sat. Because the first thought that arose for me was, 
If I had done anything close to that with my father, I wouldn't be here and neither would she. <laughs> so I must be doing something right. And I sat. And as I look back on it, the five hindrances, the five qualities that arise in our mind, the five aspects of our internal dialogue that the Buddha taught us to be aware of in our meditation practice, and I believe are very fundamental in our communication practice as well. All five of those arose, and I saw them as being present. Attachment. She was attached to my being some way that I clearly wasn't being. Likewise, I was attached to her being a way that she clearly was not being. Aversion. She didn't like what I said, and I certainly didn't like what she said. That's the way the mind goes. So then what arises is anxiousness and worry. What have I done wrong as a parent? What could I possibly do? What could be happening here that I could do better? Low energy. It is very innervating when there's tension and conflict and communication. I noticed that before her outburst, the energy around the table what had been repressed. The communication was icky and murky. We weren't being clear. It wasn't enlivening, uplifting, and joyful communication. So sloth and top topper, as it's called, that low energy was present. And then finally, doubt. What do I do? What was appropriate for me to do at that point? How did I know what to do? And I'm certain for her that as soon as she went into the bedroom and slammed the door, she began to doubt herself as well. So always, not just in our meditation practice, but in our communication, those five hindrances arise. When we're mindful and we pay attention with an intention to be mindful, we can notice those qualities arising. And what do they look like when we're communicating? How do they show up in conflict, particularly? Well, just taking my example, attachment. She wanted a different outcome to whatever was being said than what was said. And I certainly wanted a different outcome in terms of her behavior. I wanted her to be different. And I wanted to look good as a father. And she was calling me out for not looking so good as a father. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I like to look good. I like to look good with people. And so often my conflicts arise because I'm perceiving myself as not looking good or I'm perceiving someone as perceiving me as not looking good or I'm afraid that someone is going to perceive me as not looking good. And so the mind perseverates around looking good. 
to the way I want it to be. I don't want my children to be standing up, pounding on the table, calling me, cursing me, calling me names. That's not the way I want things to be. And my style, whatever I had done, I like to do things the way I like to do them. I suppose you're the same way. You have a certain way you like to do things. And we're attached to that style. That style may work for us in some circumstances, but clearly my style was no longer working in my relationship with my teenage daughter at that time. Likewise, aversion. I didn't want that to be happening. She didn't want it to be happening. I started having negative judgments about her and about myself and about what kind of job I had done as a parent. My mind started going right down that tunnel. And how often when you're in a conflict, in a communication with someone, in a conversation with someone, do you start projecting negative judgments out onto that other person? And we're always right about those negative judgments because it's the way we see it. And they are clearly being jerks and doing things in an inappropriate way. And if they would just listen to me, it would all turn out. And then I get caught in a wonderful internal conversation where I say things that are so clear and beautiful. And then I respond for them and they respond and say, oh, wow, Daniel, I just never thought of it that way. Thank you for your clarity and your wonder. And so I have this wonderful internal dialogue where I work it all out inside my head, only nothing has changed in reality other than I've gotten more stuck in the way I want it and the way I don't want it. And all during that time, I'm certainly not being mindful. I noticed, as I said earlier, that my energy sank as soon as that explosion happened. So sloth and topper doesn't just arise when we're sitting in meditation and we start to sort of fall over to one side or the other. Or our head snaps down and snaps up and we're drifting into sleep. That is certainly one manifestation of sloth and topper, of low energy. But that's not the only one. When you wake up in the morning and you have had the day before a difficult communication with someone or there's some important person in your life that you're out of relationship with and your mind has been perseverating and having one of those conversations like I just described where you're saying internally the things that are beautiful to say and you're having them respond getting you and saying, oh, you're right, Daniel. That depresses energy. And I wake up the next morning and I don't have as much energy. And I'm not as alive and full and joyful for the day. I worry. I worried about her in that situation. I get impatient. I get irritated. And my responses are even worse in that situation. <clears throat> I have performance anxiety. I'm afraid when I get around someone that I'm going to get upset. They are going to upset me. It's their fault, of course. Excuse me. So anxiousness and worry arises in any communication where things have gotten off 
And then finally, doubt. It shows up as pessimism about the process of my communication with them, whether they will ever turn out and see how wonderful I am and stop being the awful way that they're being that's causing all these problems. I get pessimistic about it. I lose confidence in them. I lose trust in them, etc. So I trust that you're getting my fundamental point. Practicing our mindfulness and being aware of the hindrances. The hindrances are hindrances to the clarity of our mind. There are clouds in our mind. And they don't just arise when we're on retreat or we're sitting in meditation. They arise in our communications. They arise in our relationships with ourselves and with others. So, I have a happy little mnemonic to help you practice taking us back to grade school. Four R's and three A's. That's all you have to remember is four R's and three, oops, I said that wrong. See how good I am this morning? Four A's and three R's. Four A's and three R's. This is how we handle the hindrances in the midst of conflict. So the four A's are Awareness, acceptance, analysis, and action. Awareness, acceptance, analysis, and action. And the three R's fit, not surprisingly, under analysis. Recollect what's happened, reflect on it, and review. So, how does this work? While I sat at the end of the dining room table with the sound of Jessica's bedroom door slamming, reverberating in the house, I became aware of my breathing. I became aware of my body sitting there and that this really was a huge challenge. So I sat with that. That simple awareness. How often when someone says something that's upsetting to us, do we immediately go out there onto them? Become protective. No pause for self-awareness. How is this landing for me? What's happening with me? Our responses are quick and automatic for the most part. So inserting awareness before we speak gives us that mindfulness pause, that moment where we can come present to our intention. It also neurologically saves our skin because what happened as soon as she stormed out yelled at me and slammed the door, I was thrown right into the most primitive part of my brain. And so are you. Right into the amygdala, my reptilian brain. If you've ever noticed a lizard or a snake, all they do is react. They don't have the capacity to think or analyze. They just react. That's why they're so fast. 
That's why getting around a crocodile is not a good idea. They're quick, a lot quicker than we are. The amygdala, the reptilian brain, is a reactive brain. So if I can bring some awareness, I give myself the chance to move out of that reactive amygdala reptilian brain a little bit higher up into my brain function where something else is possible. Not necessarily that it'll work, but you give yourself a chance. Awareness. Acceptance. This is the hardest part, usually. And fortunately, as the son of a Southern Baptist minister who was not skilled in communication and highly addicted to his reptilian brain function, (laughs) I had done a lot of practice around not wanting to be him. In fact, one of the greatest gifts the Reverend George Washington Bowling gave me, actually his name was General Washington Bowling, and thank goodness my mother saved me. I could have been introduced today as General Washington Bowling Jr. (laughs) Thank you, Thelma. So one of the things that uh, G.W., as he was known, I just, his gift to me was not wanting to be like him. (laughs) Buddhism is pretty far away from being a Southern Baptist, so I've succeeded. It's been a hard, long journey. And in that moment, as I said, the first thought that arose is, Daniel, you're doing something right because you wouldn't be here if you had done that. And it's true, I wouldn't have. So that acceptance of myself made a huge difference in that moment. I didn't need to react. I acknowledged myself. I appreciated myself for the fact that I had raised a daughter who had the courage to express herself, even if it was unskillful, And even if it was over the top and inappropriate, the hormones were cooking. Bless her heart, we've all been there. I could remember. And I accepted. So I became aware, aware of my body, aware of my breathing, and I accepted what was happening. It had happened. You know, where do we come off not accepting what's already happened? It's already happened. What does our non-acceptance of what's already happened get us? We're really psychotic. (laughs) But I do it all the time. And my mind immediately goes off into, why did this happen? How did this happen? What does this say about me? Woe is me. You've done it again. How terrible you are. You can't remember. Yada, yada, yada. The reason this is a story is because it's really true. I actually did for once in my life in that moment accept it. And I sat there 
I did not immediately spring up, reptilian-like, pounding on the door and rushing in, how dare you speak to me that way. I sat. So, awareness and acceptance. And then analysis. So analysis is when we get into the three R's. Recollection. It's really part of acceptance, but as I recollected, as I've just described to you, I thought of my own childhood. I thought of how I, my intention was my main recollection then. My intention was not to be GW Bowling. And by that time, my intention had grown a bit, and it was to be someone that I admired and respected. So I remembered my intention. I remembered my intention in my relationship with her. And I reflected on that. I reflected on what was happening. I reflected on what was going on for her. I remembered what it was like when I was swirling with hormones and my confusion. So to analyze what to do, it's important to recollect your intention and to reflect on it. Reflect on how do I address this particular hindrance. What's the appropriate way to address it? And then review the options that you have. I could storm in there. I could punish her. I could take away something, some privilege. There were many options that I had. And I'm going to come back in just a moment to the options that we have for addressing these conflicts. And then finally, act. What's our action going to be? So, four A's and three R's. I become aware that I'm caught in a hindrance, a dialogue challenge, as I'm calling them this morning, a communication challenge. It's going on inside me. It's an internal process. I accept it. That's often the hardest part. It's also the part that's the most empowering. If it's about you, I'm powerless. If you're the one that's responsible and you're to blame, I've just given you all my power in the situation. I'm a victim. Victims don't get to do anything, as far as I know. It's inherent in the definition of victimhood. I have no options. I have no choices. You have all the power. So my acceptance is a very empowering aspect. And then I analyze what's the right skillful, mindful step by recollecting my intention, by reflecting on what's the nature of this internal process, what's going on, and then reviewing the options I have to act. So this sounds like a lot to do in just a minute or two, but you'll be surprised. It's not 
that complicated. What's happened is we've slowed ourselves down enough to get out of our reptilian brain and take more deliberate and thoughtful action. And then I can act. So what kind of options do we have with each of these five hindrances or five internal communication challenges? Just think about attachment. The Buddha analogized attachment as being a still pool of water and you throw dye into it. It colors the water. You can no longer look into that still bowl of water and use it as a mirror. Or he also analogized it to being in debt, being trapped. So we can choose to let go of an attachment. We can notice it, breathe, practice, and release it. We can return to our intention. We can recall anicca, impermanence. Things just changed in a way I don't like. They'll change again. Change is inevitable. This too will pass, is the old saying. We can relax into it. We can notice the unpleasant aspects of being attached, that it is going to change, so it's not going to fulfill us over time. All of those options are apparent. And they applied with Jessica. She was acting this way, but I knew that she didn't always act this way, and that just a few minutes before, she had not been acting that way. So my reactivity and attempting to control this blip in her behavior was likely only to be worse by being attached to her being consistently in some way. Am I consistently behaving in an appropriate manner? If you are, then bless you and go forth and be attached to others being consistent in the way they behave. But I, I'm not there yet and I certainly have moments of great lack of skill in my communication. Aversion. I can call forth empathy. I can call forth compassion. Maybe I can't exactly be empathetic or be compassionate, but I can remember those. And I did in that moment with Jessica. I empathized with her teenageness, and I had compassion for what that time of life is like. It was pretty bad for me, and so I got it. Focus on the good. I knew what a wonderful young woman she was and what a wonderful young woman she was to become. And when we're averse to something, there's always some aspect of what's going on where there's good or there's good right behind it if we can let go of our aversion. Bringing our warmth and kindness Curiosity. This is perhaps the most important one. What is this aversion about? Or in the case of Jessica, what's going on with her? What has so upset her? What did I do that pushed some huge big button for her? Why would I want to, as her father, keep pushing a button that caused her such a painful reactivity? Curiosity. 
The next time you're in an argument with someone you care about, get curious about why they're so upset with you, rather than telling them why you shouldn't be so upset with me. Rather than justifying your behavior, get curious about what's driving their upset. When we're suffering with sloth and torpor, low energy, take a break, go outside, eat or drink, something nourishing. Give everybody a break. Have a little time out and say, let's reconvene in a few minutes and come back and work together. Anxiousness and worry. I had brought awareness to my body. I had brought awareness to my breath. That calms the body. I had remembered to practice. Listen more. Remember, in general, in our lives, to practice the precepts. If we are living an ethical life with an ethical foundation, the causes for anxiousness and worry don't arise as much. Coming to talks, reading, listening to talks, practicing, those are all skillful options to dealing with anxiousness and worry. And finally, doubt. Life is pretty uncertain, as best as I can tell. We really don't know what's going to happen when we leave here today. Becoming comfortable with uncertainty is the most valuable aspect of my mindfulness practice, I think, sometimes. The uncertainty of life beginning to live with that and not clinging so hard to trying to steer life in the way that makes Daniel comfortable. That's a big practice. And that allows me not to get caught so much in doubt. Increase your listening to life and to the people you're in bad communications with. Trust your past experience. Trust in life. Life has a movement and a balance that we've all experienced and trust in that movement and balance. So with all of those hindrances arising for me, I am not telling you that I reflected on all of them in that great a detail at that time. But I did reflect, I did accept, I was aware And I did take a time to reflect before I got up and went to Jessica's door and knocked. She said, come in. And she was, as you might expect, subdued and chagrined. I first gave her a hug and I said, I'm sorry for whatever I did that offended you, and I'm curious to learn what it was. But I make this promise to you. No matter what, I'm never going away. I will not stop talking to you. I will not stop communicating to you. I will not let go of connection with you.
That's what I think every father should offer his children and every mother as well and all those we love. Practicing enables us to do that. Knowing that these hindrances arise and knowing that we have the opportunity to choose mindfulness and choose presence and choose coming from our hearts instead of our minds. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your welcome. And bless us all in our effort to take our practice off the mat and into the world, especially into our world and into our communications with others. Let's sit for a moment. May the merit of our time together, of our practice this morning, of the intentions we all had that brought us here, may that merit go out from this place into our individual homes and places of work, lives and families, and extend out into the whole world. And may we and all beings everywhere be blessed. So is there a question from someone? So I've, I, uh, your, your talk made something clear to me that I've been thinking about for a while, why, why I drive the way I do. And um, uh, I, uh, I think habitually, uh, when I'm driving, I'm driving uh, uh, from the reptilian brain. And every once in a while, something reminds me, and that changes. And, um, uh, but as I say, it's a habit. It's a very strong habit. And so I, I guess the question is, um, uh, what practice? What, what do you do when you're sitting in the car and you don't want to be doing that, and the next thing you know, there you are again? Wonderful, wonderful observation. I think I do that sometimes too. And no wonder we drive from our reptilian brains. It's a very dangerous thing. There are cars all around us. There are people being aggressive around us and we're in a very highly self-protective mode. So naturally our, amyg our amygdala is stimulated heavily. So two practices come to mind for me one definitely is getting in the car, creating the intention as I open my car door to sit and breathe and be aware of my breath and so practice my mindfulness. And the second is metta practice, loving kindness practice. So wishing myself well, wishing the other drivers well, sending that compassion outward. I think those two practices would make a lot of difference 
and I'm going to practice what I just preached on my way back home today. Thank you for that wonderful reminder. You come from a Baptist background. I come from a Christian background. And um, I practice Sufism, mysticism. I practiced uh, Christianity. And I'm practicing Buddhism. And my question is, uh, how, I mean, somehow, you come from what I heard from your ancestors or Baptist ministers. Uh, somehow it's, it's, it's in your DNA. How do you reconcile now with your Christian background, Baptist background, Christian background, and the Buddhism? And how do you, uh, probably you don't put that aside, but how, how does it feel, I mean, to be, um, I mean, I, 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 I find a lot of wonderful teaching, uh, the Buddha's teaching. Um, and yet I have this incredible conflict inside, as if I am, you know, like they used to tell us in a Catholic school that, you know, God will throw, you know, stone in your head, you know. I mean, things like that, which is very much, we are very much conditioned. And, you know, and I, I just wonder how you um, deal with if you have that kind of um, conflict or you had. Several years ago, I sat the three-month retreat at IMC, IMS, I'm sorry, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And before going to that retreat, I spent several weeks uh, with my mom, who just turned 90, and is a wonderful, wonderful woman. And we would have the following conversation. You know, the Buddha's not God. And I would say, yes, mother, I agree. The Buddha never claimed to be God. And several hours would go by, and something else would happen, and mother would say, you know, the Buddha's not God. <laughs> and I would say, yes, mother, and we, her mind was clearly perseverating around it. She was worried about me. And we Baptists have one huge advantage over you Catholics. <laughs> And I reminded my mother, sometimes perhaps not practicing what I've just preached, I remind my mother that in the Baptist doctrine, once saved, always saved. <laughs> and that, uh, that would definitely, it caused her mind to go on tilt, for sure. And I would say, Mother... Do you have any doubt that when I went down to the front of the church and confessed my sins and later got baptized that I was saved? And of course she couldn't say no to that. So, but that was just my clever lawyer response. <laughs> and I can't offer you one of those for Catholics because, you know, they keep, they keep you hooked by... Uh, you can get out of that condition and go to all sorts of bad places. So let me give you a more serious answer. There were many years where the sound of church bells 
and I always seemed to find an apartment as a young man near a church that rang bells. The sound of church bells would throw me into paroxysms of guilt. So it is a lifelong practice of noticing how the mind has been conditioned in a way that you clearly know is not skillful, is not in keeping with reality, either scientific or teachings of the great masters in all religions, and therefore is simply an unskillful turning of the mind. So practice. Another practical offering I suggest, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson at one point in his dealing with the very same issue you're speaking of, took his King James version of the Bible and with a sharp razor cut out the pages, the things that he believed Jesus actually had said because they reflected the compassionate, loving clarity of his teachings as opposed to what a hundred years later the mind of men wanting to create a domineering, male-focused, hierarchical system had put into his mouth. And he, that became his Bible. You can still buy it, thankfully. It has been a great comfort to me over the years because when I read what he pulled out from Jesus, I see so much in common with the yoga teachers I studied, definitely a tremendous amount in common with what the Buddha taught and other great masters throughout history. There are fundamental truths that resonate, and those live on. And they have been, in my view, twisted by man into various religions. The best example, and I'll conclude with this, I used to study with a teacher named Patricia Sun. And she said, one day, many thousands of years ago, some person went out on a rock and found and discovered an artichoke. And what a weird thing an artichoke was, but they ate an artichoke. And while they were eating it, they had an extraordinary experience and were what we would call enlightened. And they came back to their village and people came and heard them talk and realized that they were enlightened. So they then went out and sat on the rock and ate an artichoke and tried to get enlightened that way. And that's the way religions get started. Thank you all. <laughs>